Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight. It's the biggest case to be tried yet in connection with the attack on our Capitol. And it went before a jury today. Will the U.S. government be able to prove that the founder of the far-right militia group, the Oath Keepers, is guilty of seditious conspiracy? Opening statements were delivered at the trial for Stuart Rhodes and four of his top lieutenants in a federal courtroom here in D.C. earlier today. They're accused of plotting to overthrow our government by force on January 6, 2021, among other crimes. All five have pleaded not guilty. Three other members of the Oath Keepers have pleaded guilty to the sedition charge as part of plea deals. Two more sedition trials are scheduled to take place this year. But this is the first time in over a decade that federal prosecutors have argued that Americans plotted to violently oppose the U.S. government. Their opening statement featured videos capturing the Oath Keepers' actions at the Capitol that day, along with messages and other communications among the defendants. Stuart Rhodes himself never entered the building on January 6th, but he was photographed on the Capitol grounds. The DOJ allegedly has a recording of Rhodes from four days after the attack, where he says his only regret is that the Oath Keepers, quote, should have brought rifles, end quote, on January 6th. In the days after the 2020 election, Rhodes did say publicly that he had people armed on standby to help keep Trump in power. We have men already stationed outside D.C. as a nuclear option. In case they attempt to remove the president illegally, we will step in and stop it. We'll be inside D.C. We'll also be on the outside of D.C. armed, prepared to go in. The Oath Keepers leader is expected to take the stand himself at some point during this trial. His lawyers told jurors earlier that the story the government is trying to tell is, quote, completely wrong. So what does Rhodes' estranged wife think? Tasha Adams married Stuart Rhodes 25 years ago. And she joins me now. What do you believe uh, his objective was on January 6th, Tasha? I believe his objective was to overthrow the U.S. government and to start as much violence as he possibly could. And do you have, is there any doubt in your mind about that reality? I mean, can you take us inside uh, what, based on what you know about how his mind works? Every day, every minute, every second, Every moment he wasn't personally terrorizing us as a family, he was preparing to terrorize the rest of the nation. For the last 10 years, he had always been difficult to live with, but for the last 10 years, ever since he started Oath Keepers, really has been nothing but a plan to create mayhem, to create um, war, to kick it off, like he liked to say. Um, He attempted that during Bundy Ranch, and it it didn't take off the way he wanted. Um, This was much more to his liking. And um, this fit what he was looking for all along, I believe. 
So what's it like to watch this man that you were married to for so long stand trial for this? It's, it's a moment I never thought would come just to see him face consequences. Um, a, a lot of people now can see how tricky he is and how capable he is of walking a fine legal line. And I mean, it, it took a year to get him arrested. And that's how he was in the house. Every moment was about manipulation. Every moment was about controlling the fear and feigning emergencies. Um, what uh, what an in, incredible and, and also scary moment to see this, to see him, I hope, finally facing consequences. I still have that shadow of doubt that maybe he was tricky enough, but I don't think so after seeing what I've seen today. You mentioned the fine legal line. He is a graduate of Yale Law School. Uh, what role did that knowledge of the law play in your view in his decision not to actually enter the Capitol building on January 6th? Yes, he was never going to go into that Capitol. And yet he remained at a, a pretty interesting pivot point, able to say, Mm, I'm with you guys. I'm with you. Keep going. Let's go. Let's go. And yet also able to deny that he went in. So he was he was there to be on the winning team. He was there to, um, you know, to pick his sides and to make sure he won no matter what and stayed out of stayed out of prison no matter what. Um, that very much how he he does things. What do you think? we will see from him if he does, in fact, take the stand in his own defense. Yeah. And, and I'm 100% positive he will. Um, he will fire his lawyers if he can, if they try to stop him. Uh, he will take that stand. He has made a lifetime study out of manipulating crowds, um, tactics of um, even just group hypnosis, as crazy as it sounds, but he studied those things and he studied body language and he, and he he grew up in a family of ministers and motivational salespeople, and this is his forte, and he really, truly, truly believes that he can control people with his voice when he gets in front of them. I, I think he has um, not a clear picture of the, of the audience he's speaking to. He, he's always been able to control the audience he speaks to, choosing people who tend to be gullible, the D.C. jury, the jury pool is not gullible. They are not gullible. I guess we're about to find out. Tasha Adams, thanks very much for your time tonight. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Cases like this are very rare, and a big part of that lies in the fact that we've never seen something like January 6th for the most recent guilty verdict in a seditious conspiracy case you have to go all the way back to 1995, when Islamic militants plotted to bomb New York City landmarks. The last time the DOJ tried a seditious conspiracy case, it was against a Christian militia group in Michigan. In that case, the government failed to prove that the members went beyond just talking about a rebellion. My next guest was the defense attorney in that case, meaning he is one of the few lawyers in this country to defend a case like this. William Swar, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So one of the defenses that we saw in court today was similar to your case, with Stuart Rhodes' attorney saying that the Oath Keepers' rhetoric was, quote, 
free speech and bravado. So where is the line between speech and sedition? Well, that's always been a question. It's always been a problem with the Sedition Act is that it's very vague and it's not well defined. Uh, It's clear that merely talking is not good enough, that steps have to be taken to actively oppose the government. Uh, Here, the prosecution has made a claim that they will be able to establish facts that show that these individuals were, in fact, trying to oppose the government. So I want to just clarify for our audience, we're going to walk through one by one the various arguments that that the Rhodes team is, is likely to make to try and argue that their client is not guilty of this. So one of those critical pieces is the Insurrection Act. Does their belief that they expected that Trump would declare an insurrection offer any defense? Well, the Insurrection Act authorizes the president to bring into activity military, National Guard, and militias. Uh, Their belief that there are a militia uh, may or may not play well with the jury. Uh, Militias are fairly well constructed and uh, fairly established institutions. Uh, The idea that Donald Trump could reach into his pocket, wave a magic wand, and suddenly declare a group of people uh, a militia does not seem to be established anywhere in American tradition. Okay, fair. So let's move on to another part of their expected argument. They say that they had no part in the bulk, that's a quote, no part in the bulk of the violence. Does it matter that Stuart Rhodes' lawyer says the evidence will show that the Oath Keepers had no part in the bulk of the violence? Does that hold up? Well, I'm not sure if that was Stuart Rhodes' attorney or one of the other attorneys that said it. But in a conspiracy case, it doesn't matter. If the uh, activities are foreseeable, uh, part of the agreement, uh, then you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. Okay, so another defense attorney pointed to the so-called quick reaction force. That's what they had. We we heard Stuart Rhodes talk about that a, a moment ago in the show. Uh, to show that they'd only stockpiled weapons in case of an emergency. Um, Does it help their case that they were prepared for January 6th to be worse? I struggled to wrap my head around that. Well, you know, the prosecution's position is that this is all of a piece that was part of of a plan, whether rigid or vague, to oppose the government. By taking the initiative and saying that it was merely a defensive posture, the defense may have overstepped and created an expectation in the jury that the defense would prove that this was a defensive position. You know, the prosecution has made much of this is a long-planned proceeding. And uh, the prosecution is going to be able to try to build their case uh, brick by brick. But that that building uh, 
could be problematic for them if they miss with any bricks, then the jury could say, well, they were positioned, but they didn't do anything, and therefore uh, it's a defense. So, very, I mean, very quickly, yes or no, do you think that the government is likely to win this case? Uh, no, I, don't, uh, I don't say yes or no. Uh, <laughs> if they can prove their case, you know, the prosecution has made a lot of claims. And if they can establish their claims, then they've, they've overcome the case. If they swing and miss on any uh, or a significant number of their claims, the defense has got a defense. All right, William Swore, thank you very much for bringing us your expertise tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And new audio has surfaced of Donald Trump talking about what he was doing as rioters were storming the Capitol. He claims he learned about the attack, how he claims he learned about the attack, and most importantly, when. That's next. January 6th was one of the most significant days in American history. But then-President Trump says that despite ordering his supporters to the Capitol, he initially wasn't even aware that the insurrection was unfolding. Here's what he told the New York Times' Maggie Haberman, author of the new book, Confidence Man. But what were you doing when, when how did you find out that, that there were people storming the the Capitol. I had heard that afterwards, and actually, on the late side, I was I was having meetings. Mm-hmm. I was also with uh, Mark Meadows and others. Mm-hmm. I was not watching television. I didn't have the television you on. You weren't, okay. Uh, I didn't usually have that te- the television on. I'd have it on if there was something. I then later turned it on, and I saw what was happening. So that claim is in direct conflict with what witnesses told the January 6th committee under oath. What do you I think they were, everybody was watching the TV. Um, it's my understanding he was watching television. When you were in the dining room in these discussions, was the, on, was the, the violence capital visible on the screen on the, on the television? Yes. So there you have it. Joining me now, CNN political analyst Margaret Talev, former advisor to then-Vice President Pence, Olivia Troy, and CNN political commentator Scott Jennings. So, Scott, let me start with you. Um, clearly, the former president was lying to Maggie, it seems to me. Yeah, I take? mean, of course. I mean, what, what's noteworthy is he wouldn't talk to the January 6th committee because he would have to do it under oath. Right. I guess you can lie to a journalist when they pop by and interview for their book. I mean, this, this was the worst day of his presidency, what happened on that day, and his violation of his oath of office will be the lead sentence in his obituary. He knows it. And he's trying to, you know, slough it off and make excuses for it. I mean, that, that is the bottom line about this. I mean, Olivia, you were uh, working for the vice president at the time of this, or you had, uh, you know, been in, in his circle. Um, I, let me play this for you. The Congresswoman Elaine Luria explained the president's afternoon on January 6th during this committee hearing this past summer, and it was a very stark description accompanied by um, visual aids. Take a look. The dining room is connected to the Oval Office by a short hallway. Witnesses told us that on January 6th, President Trump sat in his usual spot, 
at the head of the table facing a television hanging on the wall. We know from the employee that the TV was tuned to Fox News all afternoon. Here you can see Fox News on the TV showing coverage of the joint session that was airing that day at 1.25. Other witnesses confirmed that President Trump was in the dining room with the TV on for more than two and a half hours. So again, these people testified to the committee under oath. Um, does this seem Who do you believe? The January 6th committee and their witnesses or the former president? I believe the people that I worked with in the Trump administration who were witnesses to this firsthand, the people who were going in trying to get him to call off the ugly mob, the people who were trying to do everything in their power to figure out how to get him to stop these people. Because as we saw, witnesses said during the committee hearings that he knew that they were there for him. And so he wasn't worried about Vice President Pence's life at the time. He wasn't worried about the leadership of our country at the time. He was basking in the glory and taking it all in. So I think it's fascinating to watch him sit there and lie to Maggie. But, you know, depending on the day, that's, that's who Trump is and that's what he does. So, um, Margaret, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just a little, I was at the Capitol that day. So when I listened to him say this and, you know, kind of think through what we know from other witnesses, it's, um, I think Maggie, when she was talking about this earlier today, called it startling but not shocking. So I I guess I should describe myself as startled (laughs) as opposed to shocked here. But um, she's also said in these interviews that Trump is pretty calculating, more calculating than many people give him credit for. What's the calculation in your view behind his his what seems to me like an obvious lie to her about what he was doing that day? I mean, it's so easily refutable and, and refuted so many times by so many people, not just before the committee, all of our reporting, all of your reporting. This is everybody around him that day was trying to get his attention. People were texting him saying, you have to stop this, call it off. Like, of, of course he was watching it. Of course he knew exactly what was going on. To go out of his way to try to put that distance between himself and real-time knowledge tells me that he understands his liability, potentially, Mm. for that day. And um, because we know from our coverage of him and we know just from living as Americans here uh, over the span of those four years that when Donald Trump wants to own something provocative, he just owns it. In fact, if if he doesn't have total control over a moment, but he wants to own it, he'll just claim credit for it (laughs) and lean onto it. And so to go out of your way to put a a gap there that that doesn't exist and to say, well, I didn't, you know, sometimes I watch TV, but I I didn't know about that. And then he does a pivot where he says, and we didn't realize that um, the Capitol Police lost control, that they couldn't control things. you're, You're watching him in real time there. You're listening to him in real time say, it wasn't me, it wasn't my fault. Fault. I think that's what he's doing in that interview. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. Um, Scott, while I have you here, I mean, I, I got to ask you about something, and we're talking about Donald Trump. Um, the president posted a message on Truth Social about uh, someone you've worked very closely with for much of your career, um, Mitch McConnell. He wrote of McConnell, quote, he has a death wish, must immediately seek help and advice from his China-loving wife. I'm not even going to say what he called the wife. You can see it there um, on your screen. Uh, suffice to say it was... Um, a racist label for uh, Elaine Chao, um, who is, of course, of Chinese descent. Um, what is your reaction to that? What are the implications of a post like this? Would you take, I mean, why did he say this? Well, I think why is an interesting question. 
I think he's insanely jealous of Mitch McConnell because Mitch McConnell gets up and goes to work every day in Washington, and he doesn't because he lost. Mitch McConnell's never gotten fewer votes than a Democrat, and Donald Trump's never gotten more votes than a Democrat. And he has to live with that knowledge that Mitch McConnell's a better politician. And so I also think he lives with, uh, I think he gets very upset that McConnell won't take the bait. You know, he's been baiting McConnell ever since McConnell wouldn't go along with the January 6th stuff, wouldn't go along with the election lie stuff. And so he's been ratcheting up this rhetoric, and McConnell simply won't take the bait because he has his eyes on uh, the ball, and the ball is to try to get Republican Senate majority. So ultimately, I just think it comes down to jealousy, but I do think the rhetoric is dangerous. It looked like assassination instructions uh, topped off with a healthy uh, heaping of racism to me, and I think every Republican ought to see it for what it is. It's dangerous. It's unbecoming. It's bad for the party, bad for him, bad for the country. He ought to knock it off, and we really, really ought to think about getting a new nominee in 2024. Strong words uh, from Scott Jennings. And, of course, we do know that uh, Mitch McConnell, in many cases, blames Donald Trump for losing two Senate seats for Republicans in Georgia and therefore control of the Senate. Uh, Olivia Troy, thank you so much for being here to weigh in with our panel tonight. Margaret and Scott are going to stick around uh, for the rest of the show. Up next, five days after Hurricane Ian, the death toll keeps climbing and rescue efforts are still ongoing. An incredible story ahead. What a son did to save his elderly mother trapped by raging floodwaters in her Florida home. We're looking at four feet of water, and I've been swimming forever. Oh, my God. There's a grandma boat. We have that incredibly strong swimmer here with us tonight, a hurricane survivor himself, also a hero, coming up next. The death toll in the wake of Hurricane Ian has risen to at least 105 people tonight across Florida and North Carolina. Five days since the monster storm hit, more than 1,600 people have been rescued across central and southwest Florida. In a state that's reeling from so much devastation and loss, there still are, however, stories of hope and survival. Like this man, Johnny Lauder of Naples, Florida, who swam nearly a half a mile to save his 85-year-old mother, who uses a wheelchair. In a panicked call, she told him that water was rushing into her home and reaching her chest. As Lauder made his way to her home, he documented the trek for his family. Watch. We're looking at four feet of water, and I've been swimming forever. Oh my God. Uh, we're arriving to grandma's, or I'm arriving to grandma's. Uh, I don't know what time it is, 3.41. All right. Wow, he got there just in time because this is how he found his mother. Look at that. Her expression says it all. Wow. But this story is far from over. Status update for the family. It's now 6.30. It's the aftermath of the end. With my mom, I got her up on a table, wrapped up so she doesn't go into hypothermia. She only has one leg, so it's going to be very difficult trying to get out of here. She basically lost everything. I live closer to the water, so I know everything is gone as well. And Johnny Lauder joins me now. Uh, Johnny, wow. Uh, before we talk about how you got out, I mean, let's, let's go back to that first video we showed, that half-mile swim. 
What was that journey like? What was going through your mind as you were trying to reach your mom? Um, you can't let stuff go through your mind. Um, I just wanted to get there. I knew time was of the essence. She was running out of time and um, you just got to stay focused and dig and dig and dig and push. I mean, you, if, if you let your thoughts get into your mind, it'll slow you down. You hesitate, you won't make it. So I just tried to push it all to the side. Yeah, I mean, how lucky is your mother that you're a former police officer and rescue diver, um, you know, with the skills to, to do something like this? I mean, when you got there, we have this photo uh, of your mom as you arrive. The water is up to her chest. I mean, what was that moment like finding her? Uh, it was a sigh of relief. As I was approaching the house, I couldn't get through the front door. Um, the water was up to the windows, and I heard her screaming inside, and um, she was actually on the phone with my youngest son who was giving status updates to her. And uh, I, it, was a, it was a scare and a sigh of relief at the same time. A scare thinking she might be hurt, but a sigh of relief knowing that there was still air in her lungs. And when I got to the back window and I got it open, um, I snapped a picture so the family would know she's fine. And uh, I've never seen her happier to see me in my life. <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, she... My gosh, a savior uh, arriving uh, for her in you. And when the water did finally start to recede a little bit, um, you helped pull your mother out, apparently had a little bit of help doing that. I mean, how did you yeah. manage to accomplish accomplish saving her? Well, we, we only stayed behind because my mother's uh, a little stubborn. She's very special, I'll just put it that way. But... Um, she refused to go to a shelter, and my oldest son lives maybe four blocks from her. So we, and me and my two sons decided to stay here because we knew if things go bad, I can be close enough to get to her in time. Um, my youngest son knew that when the water was halfway down to start making his way to grandma's when it was subsiding. And he made it there. We were able to pull her out of the wreckage, but we still had a, a long journey ahead. The water might have been up to our thighs, but to her it was in her chest. So we had to push her back up that track the direction I came from and try to get her to dry land. At the same time, I don't have footage of it, but there was, uh, because my hands were occupied, there was a, um, another woman that was there and um, her, she was Haitian and her English wasn't too good, but I understood enough that she couldn't walk too well because of arthritis and she had all her belongings in a trash bag. So my son pushed my mom, I put that woman over my arms and grabbed her belongings and we made our way to the mm -hmm. hotel. The next video that I have is uh, us leaving the hotel because there was no rooms and um, we had to push mom back through the water to get to my son's house. Wow. So how's your mom doing now? Um, my mom has a condition on her skin where sores appear and she has blisters and open wounds and it started after a shingle shot. Doctors really can't figure it out. But um, we knew after the ordeal, um, when I got there, I first thought was to get her out of the water. I propped table on top of table. Um, I grabbed flotation devices I found along the way and I got her up out of the water because she was shaking like very, very bad. And I know from my training and with the onset of hypothermia looks like, and I wasn't gonna let that happen. So I found the only thing dry in her whole house was a uh, sheet set on a very top shelf. And I grabbed the sheets, and the first thing she said is, not my good sheets, don't get those wet. And, uh, oh, mom to the end. <laughs> wrapped, <laughs> yeah, wrapped her up and uh, kept her warm. Um, but I knew that she, we, she'd been in the water for too long, and we needed to, to bathe her. 
Um, so me and my son made the trek back to the house to get her special bench that goes in the bathtub so she can clean herself. Um, and it was just kind of gut-wrenching seeing the aftermath and knowing she lost everything. And when we got her home, we bathed. But then the next day, we, didn't, we weren't aware there was a boil notice. So we know there's still like bacteria even coming through the regular water lines. So we called EMS. Um, they came and got my mom. They took her to Naples Community Hospital. And as we expected and suspected, um, she did have some infections, bacterial infections. But they're treating her for it. She's warm. She's safe. Uh, that's all that matters. She is incredibly lucky to have you. And, you know, our hearts uh, go out to both your mother and to you as well. I know you have lost uh, everything. And your family uh, has set up a GoFundMe account to help uh, with yeah. the recovery. You can see the site here on your screen. So, um, you know, we'd, if, if you'd like to help. Johnny Lauder, thank you so much for your time tonight, sir. We really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing my story. Of course. Meanwhile, we saw Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and President Biden put aside political differences once before during a tragedy in Florida. Can they take the high road again? That's next. On Wednesday, President Biden is expected to visit Florida to see the devastation that Hurricane Ian brought to the state firsthand. And while a meeting with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is still up in the air, one thing's for sure. Both leaders have cooperated on response efforts in recent days, seeming to set aside their political differences for the people of Florida. Margaret Taleb and Scott Jennings are back with me, and Paul Begala joins us as well. Um, and Paul, let me actually uh, start with you here, because... I mean, it has been very interesting to watch how DeSantis handles this moment as someone who is seen as a likely challenger to uh, Donald Trump and who has engaged in pugnacious tactics. His critics call him a troll. He really has, by and large, seemed to set that aside in this moment. How do you see his performance as governor of Florida in this tragedy? Well, it's good policy and good politics, right? He's got to take care of his people. He's got... Over 100 uh, lives lost. Uh, and, and he's got to coordinate with the president. The president's got to coordinate with the governor. This is their job. If you look at their paycheck, they're each signed by the American people, the people of Florida, not the Democrats, right. not the Republicans. Uh, I think that if I were advising DeSantis, his problems are going to come. The problems will rise when the water recedes, by which I mean questions already being raised about evacuation orders. Uh, already, we're hearing reports that Property tax, insu- not tax, property insurance rates are going to skyrocket right. in Florida. Um, questions about why is he fighting culture wars and why is he flying Venezuelans out of San Antonio instead of evacuating people out of Lee County? These, these will come. Well, in They're fairness, not, yeah. that was much pretty far before. This right, but he spent millions of dollars of taxpayer but. money to do that for some culture war thing. I, I just think that, that in time, not, this will help him and maybe help him all the way through the reelection. He seems to be comfortably ahead. Uh, but in time, this is going to dog him. He's going to have to answer some really hard questions. What's your take? I mean, uh, politically, I think if you look at Hurricane Sandy, right? Uh, yeah, that's, what, that's exactly what I was going to where you wanted up. to go? Right. Um, I think Chris Christie's handling of that was both a lesson in how to do it and a lesson in how not to do it, depending on where you were in the political cycle and who you're messaging to. And I don't think that Governor DeSantis is going to... Uh, give Joe Biden, like, a bro hug on the Yeah, tarmac. I was going to say, let's, like, break that down for people yeah. who might not remember this. You're looking right now, uh, or you were a second ago, at 
Chris Christie with his arm around Barack Obama. Let's yeah. take you back to when this was. It's the final days of the 2012 presidential campaign. Mitt Romney is the Republican nominee. Chris Christie, governor of Florida, thinking about his own presidential ambitions, worried about his own state, does this with the president. Huge backlash among Republicans. And I was a young, uh, much younger reporter on the tarmac <laughs> watching it like... <laughs> I was, I was a much younger political officer sitting in Ohio working for Mitt Romney going, oh, come on. But Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis at the time was a brand new, uh, brand new elected member of Congress or about to be elected member of Congress. And right. in, the, in the months that followed, he said no and voted no to giving uh, that federal aid package. Right. He voted no twice. Um, does that make him a hypocrite for what's happening now? Well, it makes him the governor for what's happening now. And of course, right. he's doing the right thing in taking the federal money now. Uh, but it just goes to show that that messaging about fiscal conservatism or going into debt or whatever is only messaging that you get to do when it's not your state in the middle of a Well, in the Sandy thing, I mean, we should point out, too, that this was the disaster relief had not really been a partisan sort of wedge until the Sandy moment when it really turned into one, and that's continued. Well, it, the, the problem is when these things get tacked on to other spending that people don't want to do. And so what you'll hear some Republicans say is, yeah, we'd love to vote for all the disaster relief, but don't stick on every other, you know, well, yeah, uh, wish list thing you have. Yeah, but just took all the COVID billions and right. used some of it for what we're talking about here. Right. He's been Paying out our uh, friends at Politico did a great breakdown of everything he's used federal funds for, including. Yes, I saw I saw them today describe it as the president's wallet, as though uh, (laughs) as though uh, this isn't paid for by the American taxpayer. Let me me say something nice about both DeSantis and Joe Biden. I think they're both doing a great job. Joe Biden looks like he's on top of it. His FEMA director, I've been very impressed with on TV. She looks like she's on top of it. DeSantis looks like he's on top of it. They're talking this. We can have our political battles. When we have a major problem, I think that's ultimately deep down what voters want to know. Like, can these guys really pull it together if we had a big problem? In this case, Mm -hmm. they are. So it will help them both to continue that. Now, in the aftermath of it, FEMA has to follow through. We've had this in Kentucky, where I'm from, where they've had to follow through on the disaster issues we have. And sometimes they're a little slow, and somebody has to call and, and rattle the cage. And I'm sure DeSantis will end up having to do that. But right now, I think what Americans want to see is these guys talking, joined together, working together, and they are. So good on both of them. Yeah, and I mean, do we see a hug? Paul no, Powell? no, you're not going to see a hug. <laughs> it's, it's sort of asymmetrical hatred, to tell you the truth. Seriously, <laughs> if Donald Trump were president and there were a problem in a, in a Democratic state, a Democratic governor would show up, shake his hand, meet with him, work with him, uh, and pay no price from Democratic primary voters, right? It's, it really is. It's the MAGA base. It's not the whole party, but the MAGA extremists just... I don't know why, but they're just consumed with grievance and anger and hatred. And so DeSantis does have to sort of walk that. But already Val Demings, the candidate for Senate, the congresswoman yes, from Florida, running against Marco Rubio. who's running for Senate as a Democrat, has said DeSantis needs to call a special session on property insurance. This is going to be a catastrophe yeah. after the catastrophe. It's going to be a financial catastrophe for every Floridian. And Val Demings is getting out ahead of it. I haven't heard uh, Governor Sands been busy to his defense. But he's yeah. going to have to get out ahead of, of these uh, these insurance premiums. So. Yeah, it is going to be it's going to be a real Absolutely. ding in the argument. You know, there's so many people moving to Florida, but I mean, some of this property it's it's going to become basically entirely unaffordable. Mm, All right, yeah. Margaret Tallow, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Paul and Scott, stick with us, please. Coming up, a new era begins, and the highest court in the land. But Americans' trust has plummeted to a new low. What the Chief Justice is saying about questions over the Supreme Court's legitimacy when CNN Tonight returns.
The Supreme Court justices returned to the bench today to begin what's likely to be another historic term on the docket, major cases on affirmative action, voting, free speech, and discrimination against gay couples. The new term comes as public opinion of the court continues to decline following the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Just 40% of Americans approve of how the Supreme Court is handling its job. And trust in the court has fallen significantly, down 20 percentage points in just two years. Paul and Scott are back with me and also joining us, CNN's senior Supreme Court analyst, Joan Biskupic. Uh, thank you all. Um, and Joan, uh, thank you so much uh, for being here um, with us. I mean, I, I want to start with uh, the New York Times editorial board, which kind of captured a lot of the criticism that Democrats in particular have been leveling at the court lately. They write, over the past several years, the court has been transformed into a judicial arm of the Republican Party and that the court's legitimacy has been squandered in the service of partisan victories. Do you think that criticism is valid? And what kind of concern is there at the court right now around these questions of legitimacy? You know, you take those poll numbers, you take that kind of commentary, and that's consistent with a lot of what we're hearing. Numbers plunged over the weekend, uh, over the summer, and other commentators have said similar, similar things. For good reason. The Supreme Court reached out in its abortion rights decision when it reversed Roe. It has been reaching out in several other cases, too. But everything was sort of crystallized with the Dobbs opinion that reversed Roe. And we've seen the court then not just do what it did last session, but already take up new cases that it didn't need to hear on racial affirmative action in, uh, on college campuses, voting rights cases, all sorts of disputes that show a very, um, as, as one of the liberal dissenters said at one point, a very restless majority trying to accomplish things. So I do think that there is reason for concern, and I do think the justices are noticing, but they're noticing in different ways. Chief Justice Roberts is, in a sense, in a sense, in denial about this. He says, oh, people just don't like our bottom line rulings. They shouldn't be questioning legitimacy. But it's not just the bottom line rulings at this point, because people see the court rolling back precedents that are a half century old and voting so consistently along partisan lines. Donald Trump said he would appoint only people who would reverse Roe, and those three new justices voted to reverse Roe. So I'm glad you brought up uh, the Chief Justice John Roberts, because some of our reporting has indicated that he actually tried behind the scenes to potentially um, mediate the, the, the Dobbs decision and put it somewhere closer to where public opinion polls show the American people are in terms of restrictions on abortion. Take a look at we can show you exactly what Joan was just summarizing, what the chief justice had to say about the court's legitimacy at a recent conference. Watch. The court has always decided controversial cases. Uh, the decisions have always been subject to uh, intense criticism, um, and that is uh, entirely appropriate. But lately, the criticism is phrased in terms of, you know, because of these opinions, it calls into question the legitimacy of the court. Um, and I think it's a mistake to view uh, uh, those criticisms in that light. So, Scott Jennings, mm -hmm. I, I want to get your take on this because Mitch McConnell, who y you've worked for for many, many years, has been a key architect of the court in its yeah. current form. Um, and it has been something that, you know, I mean, Democrats were very upset with how Merrick Garland's nomination was handled, uh, for example, among other things. I mean, do you think the way that McConnell has conducted his efforts around this contribute to the questioning of legitimacy of the court? Well, I think if he were here, he would say 
polling numbers shouldn't have anything to do with how the court does its job. I mean, legitimacy, what do we want the court to be subject to the whims of a popular opinion mob? I mean, that's not what they're there for. They're there to interpret the Constitution and, uh, and to interpret the laws that the Congress passes. And so I think right now the people who are questioning its legitimacy are just mad that they're not getting their way every time. I mean, an institution's legitimacy can, cannot be called into question just because you don't get your way 100% of the time. And I don't, I, I, to me, it's very clear. Yes, it's a conservative court right now, but it hasn't always been and it won't always be. In a free country, legitimacy is derived from the people. We are the sovereign. We don't have a king or queen. This Supreme Court has a majority of justices who were placed, nominated there, by presidents who first came to office without the support of the American people. They got into the Electoral College, that's fine, but they didn't have popular support. Then they were confirmed by senators from small states that represent a minority of the American people. This is why. This is why. By the way, it's, it's bedtime for the kids, so if you need a fairy tale, listen to Scott. Because the Supreme Court's not on the level. 60% of Republicans think they're doing a great job, only 36% of independents do. Set my Democrats aside, of course I don't like what they're doing. But when two thirds of independents don't think the court is doing its job, that is a crisis of legitimacy. Final and, word. And can I say something? It's not going to change soon, Scott. When you said they'll up, they'll be up, they'll be down. The youngest members of this court, minus newest Justice uh, Jackson, are all in their fifties. They're going to be here longer than we will be here. I was going to say this court is praise Mitch McConnell and praise Jesus. Thank goodness, because (laughs) I just I mean quickly. (laughs) I, I, I just think. These guys are not supposed to be reading polls. They're supposed to be reading the Constitution. They're supposed to read the Constitution, not yes. just some right-wing claptrap talking points out of Fox News. That's what they're doing. All right, guys, Good we could night. apparently go all night on this topic. But unfortunately, we are out of time. Joe Muskepik, Paul Magala, and Scott Jennings, thank you guys very much for that. Thanks so much for watching. I'll be back with you tomorrow night. But don't go anywhere. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.